All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, actually nearing the end of our time in this book, only a few more weeks, and, um, and I think it's been a profitable journey for us uh, through the words, uh, though sometimes difficult and confusing, the words that God has given to us in this book. So join me in chapter 11, and I'm going to read the first six verses. Ecclesiastes 11, uh, verses 1 to 6. Hear now the word of God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the spirit that comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now as we come to these words of wisdom? We believe uh, that these words are a gift from you. We believe that they have their source in you. And so they are full of truth, they are full of wisdom, and they are full of life. And sometimes it's hard to see that. Sometimes it's hard to embrace that. And so we need your help this morning. Would you give us clarity as we consider this passage? I ask that the power of your Holy Spirit would impact our hearts and our lives, that we would be changed by your truth, that we would be led into lives that reflect your kingdom. And so we ask for that work this morning. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Open our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My dad has motion sickness, uh, so that if, uh, if he gets on rides that go round and round or that change altitude very quickly... Uh, his digestive system does not react well. <laughs> and uh, he was a youth pastor for a little bit. And uh, so I saw him multiple times be shamed into getting on these rides. And the result was always the gross same thing. And, um, and because of that, because I saw that happen to my dad over and over again, I was scared of those types of rides for, for much of my life. And I refused to get on them. Because there was the risk of nausea... I would not uh, get on roller coasters because I thought my digestive system would react the same way as his. We could respond in a similar way to the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher in this book tells us about his experiences and he reflects on life in a way that shows us that life can be nausea-inducing. Life is a vapor. It's hevel. Remember that Hebrew word that we've seen throughout this book, sometimes translated meaningless, but a better translation is hevel or smoke. Life is a wind that we cannot grab a hold of, and because of that, bad things happen to all kinds of people. Pain comes when it is not expected or deserved. And life can be difficult and dangerous, unpredictable, 
unexpected and uncertain. And we could respond to that message, the message of vapor, by withdrawing from the potential of danger. We could respond by insulating ourselves from the possibility of nausea. That because we might throw up, we choose not to get on the ride. We could respond that way, but we shouldn't. And we shouldn't respond that way because of the text that we've just read. The text that is in front of us this morning is a call to get on the ride. The text this morning is a call to bold action in a dangerous world. The response to vapor, says the teacher, is risk. The response to vapor is risky action. So yes, the teacher says, you might puke, but get on the ride anyway. And what I want to do this morning is to consider that message of risk that the teacher gives to us. And I want to ask two questions. I want to ask what and why. What and why. So first of all, what? What kind of risk is involved in the message that we have in this text? Well, notice that the teacher commends three actions. Okay, verse 1, he tells us to cast our bread on the water. This is most likely an image of international trade, of shipping, of sending goods away to other places in the world. Okay? Uh, verse 2, he tells us to give a portion to seven and even to eight. And the, the mathematics there suggests the idea of taking resources and spreading them around in preparation for a disaster. Okay? And in verse 6, he gives us the basic agricultural action of planting in anticipation of a harvest. Now think about what connects these three actions. They're all investments. They are all doing something now that has the potential of paying off in the future. Of doing something in the present that might produce benefit further down the road. And so the teacher is telling us, take the risk of investment. And he's not talking about it. This is important. He's not saying here the risk that you should take is an ever-increasing adrenaline rush. He's not saying become an adrenaline junkie and just do something more and more risky. Go and hunt bears and jump off cliffs and things like that. He's calling us to the risk of investment. The problem is, as we hear that with American ears, we think using money to make more money. Right, to prepare us for retirement or to pay our kids' college. And that's too narrow. That is too narrow for what the teacher is talking about in this passage. It's too narrow because it's limited to money, where the implication here speaks to all sorts of resources. And it's too narrow, more importantly, because it focuses on personal wealth, where the teacher pushes the impact of investment into the community. He calls us to an investment that moves us towards generosity. It is an investment not this way, 
but in investment this way. You see that in, verses two, in verse 2. Give a portion to seven and even to eight. And the idea, the image here, is of a leader or a wealthy person in a community preparing for a disaster, but preparing for that disaster in a way that doesn't merely protect his or her house, but protects the whole town, protects the whole city. It's the image of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis? Who goes to Egypt and God equips him with wisdom so that he's able to gather resources. And these resources, when the famine hits, protects not only Egypt, but much of the known world at that time. That's the kind of investment that the teacher is calling us to. An investment towards generosity. And I emphasize that because there's a debate about this passage. And one side says the teacher is encouraging us towards business endeavors. And the other side says, no, the teacher is telling us to be involved in philanthropic activities, charity work. And the problem with that debate is it separates what the Bible integrates. The Bible integrates all of our life under the call, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's whether you're doing charity work or whether you're investing in stocks and bonds. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Invest your life in a way that produces benefit not only for you, but for those around you. This is a part even of God's law in the Old Testament. He instructed his people how they were supposed to harvest their crops. So they would plant crops in a square, but they would harvest crops in a circle that left the edges of the fields unharvested so that the most vulnerable in the community could come and have food that would provide for their needs. And you see those laws played out beautifully in the story of Ruth. You remember the story of Ruth? Boaz, this wealthy man who follows the law of God, he leaves the edges of his crops for the poor. And he doesn't just do that. With Ruth, he takes this marginalized person and he brings her not only to the edges of what he has, but to the center of what he has. So that she and her mother-in-law benefit from the investments that he has made. That's what this passage is calling us to. This passage is calling us to that kind of life. To take our capacities, to take our abilities, to take our resources and our opportunities and use them in a way that impacts this world positively. Your life is a seed. Plant it, the teacher says. Last night, I was able to go and hear uh, the FSU Chamber Orchestra and Choir uh, perform an oratorio based on the life of Solomon, composed by George Friedrich Campbell. Handel is a man who planted his life. He invested himself in creating works of art that benefit and delight us over 250 years later. And you might not be a fan of classical music, so you might not go and 
here's Solomon, but at some point in the next two months, you're going to benefit from Handel because you're going to hear portions of his Messiah, like the Hallelujah Chorus, and for unto us a child is born. 250 years later, he planted his life, he planted a seed, and we reap the harvest. We benefit from the harvest. Now, most of us, probably none of us, will have that level of impact, the impact that a genius like Handel has on the world. But we must, especially as people of faith in Jesus, we must recover that creative impulse. Because here's the problem. Here's what's happened in the church and with Christians is that so often our stance, our posture to the world, to the culture around us, is one of critique and consume. We look around at what's going on and we say, that's good, that's good, that's not good, that's good, that's okay, that's bad. Okay? And then we swallow what's good and we spit out what's bad. But what Ecclesiastes calls us to, what I believe Scripture as a whole calls us to, and what the model of people like George Friedrich Handel calls us to, is a posture of creativity towards the world around us. To ask the question, how can I take this little piece of the world that I have, with my abilities, with my opportunities, with the gifts that God has given to me, the education that God has provided me with, how can I take that and make something good of it? Something that benefits the community around me. And maybe that community is small and maybe it's large. But we need to ask those questions. We need to ask ourselves, how can I spend my life generously for the life of my neighbor? How can I invest myself in a way that impacts my community, my family, my neighborhood, my town, in a positive and a life-giving way? Take the risk of investing your life. And that applies to our endeavors in business, government, arts, sciences, education. But you know what? It also applies to raising kids, being a friend, serving at church, serving in social organizations that do good around our city. Take the risk of investing your life. raises a second question for us. Why would we do that? There's still the potential of danger there that Ecclesiastes talks about. Those thorny parts of life, those dangerous and painful parts of life. Why would we take the risk of investing ourselves in this way? Well, at one level, we we could say we should risk this kind of investment uh, because of the potential of success. Right? So the teacher says, hey, the bread, it might come back to you. If you sow your seed, you can reap a harvest. So there is the potential of success from this type of investment. The problem is, right alongside the potential of success, is the potential of failure. Right? So the investment might pay off, but it might not. So certainty of outcome is not sufficient to motivate risk. In fact, it seems like the teacher here in this passage takes special pains 
to emphasize uncertainty. So verses 3 and 4. He talks about trees falling and wind coming down, right? And, and this is the wind and the rain. These are things that we can't control. And in verse 4, he turns and says, if you wait until you can control or predict them, then you'll just wait forever. You will be paralyzed. You will take no actions if you're waiting until you can, tr- can control and predict the wind and the rain. And then verses 5 and 6. Look at those again with me. And as I read these, notice the repetition of this phrase, do not know. Verse 5, as you do not know the way of the Spirit, it comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. See what he's saying? You don't know. You don't know what's going to succeed and you don't know what will fail. In the way that you don't understand the mystery of life, and even with all of our scientific advancements, we still do not fully understand the mystery of life. In that way, you cannot understand the mystery of the work of God in the world. That's in the Bible. I mean, I come to the Bible expecting to be told, here's what God is up to. Ecclesiastes says, you can't know fully what God is up to. It's frustrating, right? He is trying to motivate us with our limitations. He says to us, risk because of what you can't do and because of what you don't know. Isn't that frustrating? to be led to the edge of what we are able to do and to know, and then be told to jump off that edge. He says risks, even if you don't know if it will bring pain or if it will bring pleasure. This is not the way I would have written this. It's not the way we typically motivate people. Because we want solid if-then statements, don't we? We want solid, if you do this, then you will get this outcome. If you work hard, then it will produce this good outcome. If you are moral and good, then it will produce the outcome that you want. And the teacher reaches in and he takes that stability away from us. He will not let us have those solid if-then statements. He says, yes, it might pay off, but it might not. Now, how does that motivate risk? Think about what's happened in the Philippines recently. People who have worked hard all of their lives, who have done what they're supposed to do, in a moment... How can that uncertainty motivate risk? Well, remember what we've learned in Ecclesiastes. Remember what we saw early on in this series, that the words of of this book, chapter 12 says this, the words of of this book, they are sharp, they are difficult, 
but they're like goads. And goads were sharp sticks that shepherds and goat herders used to point animals in the right direction. And so the image is that the sharp, difficult, painful words of these books, the words that tell us our limitations, the words that remind us of uncertainty and instability, these words are sharp, but they are sharp with a purpose. They are leading us somewhere. Where are they leading us? Well, better to ask, to whom are they leading us? Because throughout this book, the teacher is constantly taking us towards God. He's taking us towards the fear of God, towards trust in God, confidence in God, worship of God. So do you see what he does in this text? He says, no, you can't have that stability. You can't have the stability of solid if-then statements. Why? Because he wants us to find stability in God. He takes away the certainty of our knowledge and control so that we would find certainty in God's knowledge and control. And once again, the book of Ecclesiastes leads us to the gospel. Leads us to the message about Jesus. Because Ecclesiastes says, here are all the things you can't know. (coughs) And the gospel of Jesus says, Here's one thing you can know. You can know that you belong to and are beloved by God in Jesus Christ. You can know God. You cannot know the full mystery of His ways, but you can know that He is your Father and that you belong to Him and are beloved by Him. I was eventually pressured uh, by shame and cajoling into getting on to a roller coaster. And I loved it. And I didn't get sick. But you know what? I can't promise you that with the ride of life. I cannot promise you that that ride will be nausea-free. But the gospel does give us a certainty. As we are reminded of the instability of life, the message about Jesus gives us stability. And here it is. Here is a certainty. Nothing, the Apostle Paul tells us, nothing in heaven or on earth can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here is a certainty amidst all of the other uncertainties around you, all of the unstable if-then statements. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that teaches us to risk. It is that confidence that enables us to invest our lives without the guarantee of success. The book of Ecclesiastes in Jewish tradition was read during a festival. And this festival was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this festival celebrated two things. It it celebrated the yearly harvest as God's people harvested their crops 
The festival was a celebration of that. But it also remembered a time when God's people didn't have crops. It was a time when they remembered the 40 years that they wandered in the desert and they didn't have a harvest, but lived every day dependent on miraculous bread falling from heaven. And so during that festival where they celebrated the current harvest and remembered God's provision when they didn't have a harvest, they read the book of Ecclesiastes. You see the connection they made in this book? They captured the central message of this book. Celebrate the harvest, yes. The teacher tells us, eat your bread, enjoy it, drink your wine, enjoy it, but don't trust the harvest. Trust the God who rules over both the desert and the fertile field. Trust the God to whom you belong, whether the crops are going well, or whether you're wandering in the desert, wondering where your next meal will come from. There's a prayer, it's a daily prayer in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and it ends this way. It says, Rejoicing in the fellowship of all the saints, we commend ourselves to the unfailing love of God. That's where we learn to risk. That's where we learn to invest our lives. When we commend our lives to the unfailing love of God. That is our response to vapor. It is to live with bold generosity because we belong to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.